and welcome to Co-Produce Care. Uh, today we have with us from the solicitors firm in Bristol, Greg Latchams. Uh, we have Heleth Wynn. Uh, Heleth is Associate Director and Head of Long-Term and Elderly Care. Um, and she's also worked on court protection cases um, and is involved in an organisation called STEP. And we also have uh, Cecily Donahue with us today. Um, she's a solicitor um, in the employment department. Uh, she's worked on employment issues, including document support, performance management, procedural support, and uh, defending tribunal claims. So, um, welcome both of you. Thank you for coming on a co-produced care chat. Thank you. Um, and I think this is a really exciting one because we're talking about issues that happen to providers, social services, and obviously the people who are supported, um, and how they all come together and all don't work or do work. Um, so really excited to hear about um, your experiences and the cases that you deal with, maybe some tips about how people can avoid the pitfalls. So um, really excited for this one. So before we start, could you maybe give a bit of an intro about how you got into this uh, area of law um, and what kind of cases that you deal with? So maybe Heather, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of really doing a lot of my job working with people, mm. and people always have complicated lives and complicated problems, mm. and it's trying it's working out how we can best support them to get to the answers. So. People are living longer, they're not necessarily living well longer, and they're finding themselves needing more care and support that's getting more and more complicated. And I think finding yourself in the social care system is hard work for most people, especially if it's unexpected. And, and there's a lot of law that sits behind it. And so really, as a lawyer, sitting there and going, OK, this is what you're entitled to, this is what you can have. And let's go find out how we can best achieve that for you. So that, that I think that's sort of where I've started from. Yeah. And finding myself on a daily basis. Right. Um, and how about you, Cecily? So as you said, I'm an employment solicitor. So I focus on both employers and individuals and their rights when they're at work. Um, it's a full spectrum type of employment role. Um, deal with, as you say, the day-to-day -day advisory issues. So if staff are off sick or if they've got concerns at work that they might be raising, all the way through to if things go really wrong at the end of the day and there might be tribunal claims. But also coming at it from a from a care angle, of course, you've got um, people that are working in care are the main sort of front line in providing that service. So you've got employers that have a lot of duties and obligations on them. So they've got to make sure that the workers that they are providing and the environment that they're working in are complying with all the obligations. And there's there's a lot of change afoot, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but yeah, it's just making sure that not only do individuals understand their rights when they're at work, but how employers can get the best out of them when they go forward. I mean, in terms of the sort of day-to-day -day issues that come up, are there anything or any aspects that you find are quite common um, in terms of what people are asking support with in either of your, your work, maybe? Yeah, yourself? oh gosh, yes. I think a classic example I, I will see with clients is that I'll get a phone call, and it's generally on a Monday, and it's either dad's had a fall, dad's in hospital, and he's been told he's got to go into care, or I've seen something in the in the newspaper in the Sunday newspapers. I want to know more about it. Mm. So, but it's very much this. I think one of the things we saw we seen recently is this sort of notion of bed blocking in hospitals. Horrible phrase, but mm. people are like, how do you get them out of hospital? 
social care is very difficult, it's very under, it's been very underfunded historically, and people are finding themselves in this system, and it's complicated, and it's messy, and it's emotional, and so it's trying to help people navigate that sort of move maybe from a hospital into a care home or into a care at home setting and what works best for the person in the middle who by that point is probably a bit vulnerable a bit frail um and how do we how do we best support them and so how my automatic recourse wouldn't be to pick up the phone and talk to a solicitor so do you think people come to you because it's got to that stage where no one's listening to them or the system isn't very clear they don't know really where to go I think that's absolutely right and I I think that we're only one door that people come through Mm. and I think that possibly people do come to us because they've tried social services they've tried the nurses and everybody's really stretched and they sit there and go, oh, well, maybe my lawyer can help because we I know we did something with them about 15 years ago and dad signed a bit of paper. I think it's called a power of attorney. Mm. So often we'll get that call and it's like, I need to take this power of attorney out of storage and I can say, you know, gosh, what else is happening? Because it's all about people. It's all about their stories. And then we're starting to, and they sound quite distressed. They go, oh gosh, I don't know where to turn. And Mm -hmm. as you say, it's that maybe they're not being listened to quite as much as they'd like to, because nobody's got the time Mm -hmm. often to give them as much support as they'd like. So uh, we can certainly help with navigating that and and pointing people in the right direction. And do you feel that people are, as the professionals, is it just about time or is it sometimes they actually don't know the law or they don't know what they should be doing or what the entitlements are for people. I think it's it's a bit of both. Yeah. I I think, you know, law is complicated. (laughs) There's a lot of it. You've got case law, you've got actual legislation and, you know, it's a lot to take in. There's a lot to learn. And if you're very much frontline, maybe nursing or social care, when you're trying to help people move forward understanding maybe some of the legal niceties maybe there's just not the time for that and we've had a client um recently we were helping with and we were talking to local authority and they said no we know that we know what the law says but your clients we've got about 100 other clients in front of you Mm. and i said i'm yeah really sorry but what you're doing is not in you're not adhering to the law and my client is suffering. So I'm really sorry that you've got a lot of problems and no money and not enough staff, but it's damaging my client. So we've had to, we've ended up negotiating and having quite a lot of discussions and started to move this, this client's case forward by saying, well, you know, you have to apply, adhere to the law. And so suddenly she's gone up, up the list. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel the same thing but on the employers? Yes, absolutely. Where they either don't really know the employment law, how it relates to people, or um, they just don't have the time to... I think it's a bit of both. To be fair to employers, there's a lot out there that they need to be aware of. And sometimes there's the technical aspects of the law and the practical reality. So there can be a common sense approach. They might be very experienced and have dealt with these issues in the past. But they might not know that there's either a new piece of legislation or a new case law that determines that actually they should do something slightly differently. So often we'll get a call from employers when it's, this has happened, I've done this so far, now what do I do? Or they've come back with this and I'm not quite sure, this hasn't arisen before, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's a crisis purchase, I think possibly for both of us, which 
it's fine. You know, law and going to your legal advisor might not be your first point of call. You might have a consultant or you know, a, a learned friend or a family member that you might be able to ask in the first instance. But at the end of the day, there's law that underpins what you can and cannot do as an employer. And it's having that understanding and experience. And we can help both with the technical aspects, but also just the practical day-to-day realities of how you navigate those and, and strategically deal with something. Because if you've got a member of staff where something has happened, you need to address that, not only for that member of staff, but any other members of staff that it might be dealing with, because often it can have a real impact on the team. So it's yeah. about dealing with it properly, but also in the right way for that business to make sure that they get the right result ultimately. So it's mainly SME businesses that you're looking to yes. support. And are there any common threads that SME businesses are getting wrong? Yeah, I mean, not so much that they're getting wrong. It's just changes upon them at the moment. So right. we've had a difficult period of uncertainty. Hate to mention the, the the Brexit B word, but that has caused a lot of uncertainty in the market. And employers are taking a, a considered approach as to what they now deal with. So it's quite often reactionary rather than maybe more proactive that they would have been previously. They're looking at costs and budgets and what they can afford to do. And there's, there's things like where you're looking at actually the cost of recruiting a member of staff if somebody leaves. That's quite high. And you've got a period where they're going to be upskilled and embedding into the workforce. Whereas actually if they can take measures that retain and attract high quality caliber candidates that then remain with them over a longer period of time, that's a cost that they can maybe save. But then there are other circumstances just day to day where it might be performance management or actually you're looking to push somebody to go for a promotion in the next step. So it's it's sort of more looking at how they can make long lasting but cheaper efficiency measures going forward that put them right now, but also they're fit for purpose for the future, rather than maybe making such knee-jerk decisions that they might have done before. So what kind of cases are coming to you? uh, Yeah, I mean, common difficulties with sickness absence management. If somebody is recently recruited or have been with you a long time, it might be intermittent short-term absences or suddenly they've had a really serious diagnosis and they're off longer term. How can the employer support them? And what can they do to get them back to work? Or if they can't, what adjustments can be made? And complying with the legislation that applies to that, but also making sure that that individual with their specific circumstances, because you don't have the same for everyone, and how they can do their role, which again is specific to them to deal with. So sickness absence is a very common one. Um, Also performance management. So that might be tied into whether or not there's maybe been a change of manager. Goalposts sometimes change and employee isn't able to adjust with that. Changing needs of businesses means that they need more from their staff that they might not have needed so much in the past. So those are two common ones. but also looking at the direction of travel in that business. So how are we looking ahead? How will our workforce support them? Is there measures that we can put in place of automation or or systems that make everybody's lives quicker and easier and more efficient at work? So those would be, I say, the main three that we deal with. Um, Or there's the, I've suddenly had a claim form. (laughs) I've suddenly had a phone call from ACAS. What do I do now? So it can often be the end of the road as well. And I think for me, with the clients I'm seeing, it, it ties in with the employment, is that um, we're seeing people who are, it's their parents who need care, mm-hmm. and they're in work. Yeah. And they're suddenly finding themselves having to run a full-time job. Maybe they've got a family of their own that they're trying to manage, and suddenly they have to start caring for somebody else. And it's balancing, gosh, I've got a day job, I've now got to look after my dad, or my mum, and it's just, it's getting quite complicated, and also, you know, how do we navigate what's a really complicated health and social care system, and the private side of it, where some people suddenly find themselves having to pay for care, that can sometimes come as a bit of a shock to people, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and so it does tie in with people have, people have got busy lives, 
and say, you know, you're talking about employers, well, you may have uh, people who are employees who are in the care industry as well, so directly or indirectly. So you're talking about, say, like a care worker who has a mum or dad at home who they get ill and then they as care worker become carer for their family at home and their caring in yeah. work. So that's how you've got the employment side yeah. and you've got the side of them being a, a son or daughter yeah. who then has caring responsibilities. Yes. So it then becomes really complex. And I think some people, sometimes that's not much discussed, that no. all those responsibilities on that one person and the whole heap of law that surrounds that situation. Yeah. Um, so talking about law, you talked about carer's rights and um, the person's right who needs care. What's the piece of legislation that is the recourse for issues around that? Okay, so the, so the big piece of, of law that's come in sort of recently in legal terms is the Care Act. Yeah. And the Care Act's a lovely bit of law, you know, if you've been nerdy about it. <laughs> um, and the overriding um, part of the Care Act is well-being. So it's the well-being of the person who needs care and the well-being of their carer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, anybody who finds themselves needing care is entitled to an assessment from the local authority to say, let me sit down with you and let me find out about you and what your care needs are and then how do we meet them. Mm-hmm. But that person will probably have a carer, whether it's a spouse or a child or a sibling or a parent, and that person who's a carer is also entitled to an assessment. It's really important that they both get um, looked at, met, and their needs discussed. Because mm-hmm. it might be, well, respite, for example, works both ways. So the person who needs care has an opportunity to go into respite, but so does their carer have a chance to go look after themselves a bit. So I think it's one of those things is, um, is a really great bit of law mm-hmm. that people perhaps don't know about, that actually both parties can be looked at and their needs assessed. So the whole idea of the Care Act then is to look at it holistically. It's not just looking at the person, looking almost like relation, relational autonomy or relationally, um, at you know what are the supports that that person needs and are they supported? Absolutely. So actually it comes from quite a progressive place when you think about it. Mm. Uh, so you said that a lot of people don't know about it. What makes you say that? I think that um, I think when people sort of find themselves suddenly needing care, mm. it's one of these again. It's one of these t- tends to be a crisis purchase. Nobody wants to think about getting sick. Nobody wants to think about being ill. And they said, you know, I think people will go, oh, I'll go to the GP, and the GP will sort me out. But the GP's part of the NHS, mm. and it's the understanding that the uh, what sits alongside the NHS is the social care side. And the law governing the NHS and social care is different. And it's making sure that they, they access that. So um, local authorities have an obligation under the Care Act to sort of make it av- this information available. And they're doing a good job by sort of putting it on websites and signposting. But sometimes that's very hard to find, to access if you, you know You don't know it's there. You don't know it's there. Yeah. So why would you go why would you go looking? Yeah. So it's Again, we're back to that. So, who do you start with? You do you talk to your lawyer? Do you talk to your GP? Do you talk to your friends? Do you talk to somebody else who's been through this? There's all sorts of ways of coming at yeah. this, and it's understanding how you work on that journey. Mm-hmm. So, I think 
you know, it's brilliant. Signposting is fantastic and it's a really good start. But often people find themselves wanting their hands held. They want to be told what to do. They want to go, just please make it better. Yes. Yeah. I suppose it's that you, you think about, well, I need some care. But you don't think that there's such a complex system around it. So that's where you're able to unpick it for people and able to almost fight for their rights, really. Absolutely. And we are, you know, whatever whatever way door you're coming in, mm. it's that sort of, it's that fighting for your rights, it's that sort of advocacy, which yeah. is, you know, actually standing up for something, you, know, you are entitled to this, this, this and this. Now, it's whether the whether our clients want to go, thank you so much, I've got that information, I'll go and do it myself. Or they want us to say, well, can you help us? And it is really about working with the individual mm. and saying how much or how little help do you want from us? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, we're lawyers, we know the law, mm. and we're, we're really happy to tell people about it. Mm. But it's, it's one of those things, it's sort of underpinning a very complex, messy and emotional yeah. time. Yeah, because uh, I think with obviously people coming to you, then they don't want the bother of having to go through the Care Act and find out, well, what am I entitled to? Because they're going to have to navigate this, they're going to have to think about eligibility and what does that mean and what does that mean to me? And it almost seems a little bit strange that people have to go through that process. It's not just done for them because nobody breaks a leg and goes to hospital and then says, right, how am I eligible to have my bed fixed? Um, they, it's very, it's such a different dynamic with social care than that you have with the NHS. But then there is a little bit of the NHS part of it because you've got the CCGs, do you, the, the clinical commissioning groups. Yes. Uh, so do you have to work with health as well as social care? Absolutely. Um, and uh, again, it's this sort of, for, for my clients, it's if they're in hospital, um, they're under the remit of the clinical commissioning group. Right. And then it's, do they fall outside the hospital into social care? Or are they in that sort of grey bit in between, bit, bit healthcare, bit social care? Um, there, there's different budgets and different people doing different bits. So yeah, we do end up talking to the CCG a lot as well. And um, to do work with clients who's, I say often with a phone call I get is, dad's been asked to leave hospital. I know he's got some money and they've said, we'll go and find a care home and I don't know how to pay for it. So um, again, I think, I think your point's really nice that, you know, if you go to hospital with a broken leg, it's made better. <laughs> or is this, it's this, once you're not in the health system, you're expected to do much more for yourself. Um, and that's hard. Mm. That's hard because you people are frail and scared and it's complicated and there's always these people around the edges. Mm. Um, it's often about knowing who to speak to when, which we can certainly help with. But also there's there's just the, the basic principle, you don't know what you don't know. So if you've got that position, whether somebody's a employed carer or they're just working outside of the care industry completely and the dad has the fall potentially, they're in hospital, care needs to be put in place afterwards. What can they do to support dad? But also what can they do to support themselves? You know, they've had the call from the hospital. Do they get time off work? Do they have to tell their employer that they're a carer? If they've been out of work for a number of years caring, how do they then get back into the work environment? So there's there's so much information that actually that one individual on the periphery supporting that person with care needs to know can often be quite overwhelming. And there's there's a lot of fantastic resources out there to signpost, but often they don't have the, the time or the inclination to work through everything. It's about who do I need to speak to next 
for what and how. And then once I've got my options, I can make a decision and go ahead and put in place that care for dad, or I can take that time off that I need, or actually I can ask for help from my employer as I need to. And the employer then knows their position as well, because speaking from an employment angle, the Employment Rights Act tends to govern most of the legislation around governing staff. Mm. Um, obviously, there's there's lots of red tape, as employers often call it, so health and safety obligations, you've also got discrimination and things under the Quality Act. There's a whole raft of information that comes into play here. But at the, at the person at the centre needing the care, they're often either particularly elderly or unwell. So they're subject to rights under the Equality Act. They're protected from discrimination on that basis. And so might there be their, their son or daughter who might be caring for them because there's association or perception discrimination that can apply as well. So it's sort of quite overreaching and it, there's lots of avenues by which people come into contact with the law, often without realising it. And it's that actually, this is what's happened. Who do I speak to first, either the GP or somebody in the hospital? Then what do I need to do? And it's almost like people come with a, please, can you give us a, a tick box exercise or a checklist mm. of what I can now do to help me and my family member that's now in that situation? Yeah. Um, do you ever have to work together on cases? Do they overlap or is it just quite quite separate? I think we talk, we do talk to, we do have shared clients. Yeah, okay. Because I think um, they might come in to me to talk about, um, you know, what do I do as a carer mm. for dad? But then it might be, well, I'm really worried about my job. How much time off can I have? What am I entitled to? And I'll go, speak to my friend. <laughs> right, so yeah. that's where you're talking about that care worker whose family member gets ill and then you've got the employment issues yeah. and you've got the care with duties as well. Lovely. What advice would you give to local authorities um, in terms of what they should avoid or what they should promote so that you don't have people coming to you saying, we need help? Okay, so I think they're doing a really good job of getting stuff on their websites, which is brilliant if you've got access to the internet. Um, I think perhaps people who are a bit older aren't so keen to get straight on the internet and Google things. So I think they need to be a bit more sort of proactive in perhaps talking to people and getting into the community, maybe getting to GP surgeries um, and saying, you know, come to us early. I think I would like to see people um, being assessed or told about what's available to them before it's a crisis because you know crisis management is fine and all but nobody wants to be there so having education outreach planning would be brilliant and um, I think also perhaps um, understanding that not everybody should has to go through local authority because maybe I think if people um, go to the GP and want a second opinion it's quite accepted that people go and get private consultations so why not use a charity or a lawyer or something else to to go and get some advice it might just help take the pressure off a bit so it's almost like whether they could have an advice centre yeah that help? I think that would be quite good I yeah. think you know I think if there was a maybe a helpline that people could just get to and say look let me send you some stuff in the post um, I just don't know whether there's the resource at the moment, so much austerity has been and, and the struggle with that. So I think um, keep keep going with getting the information out there, keep yeah. talking to people, um, but maybe understand that, you know, it doesn't all have to come through this narrow funnel. There are other ways of, of finding that information. Yeah. So, um, you know, some great charities out there doing some good work on, on this sort of thing. So maybe, you know, go talk to them. Yeah. 
And in terms of employers, are there things that you think that they should or shouldn't be doing that are just kind of red herrings that you see cropping up all the time? Is it a cultural issue where some people don't feel safe or confident to go to their employers about issues that they might have and then things just ex escalate? Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got an individual that doesn't work in the care industry but finds themselves looking after either an elderly relative or, or another loved one, it's really difficult for them to understand what their rights are when they are at work. And whilst there aren't necessarily always bespoke carers' rights available to them, there are other rights that they can take advantage of. And I think there's been a lot of fantastic work done about flexible working, but also rights when, let's say, women are pregnant and going off on maternity leave or, in fact, coming back. But it's much less known about or much less awareness about what you can do when you've got somebody who's unwell, maybe a dependent. And a lot of the rights that are available are often unpaid. So if you've got somebody in a difficult position where money is tight anyway, not only can they not afford to take time off that isn't paid, they're then likely to use all their holiday entitlements up, which means they don't get the opportunity to have time off to relax and enjoy their hobbies or do anything else. So they're more likely to get burnt out. So it often doesn't become an issue that the employer is aware of until there might be performance concerns or they're unwell with stress or anxiety. So it's often quite late in the process. And unfortunately, and you can understand it's a very much individual personal choice, but there's quite a lot of stigma about talking about either mental health in the workplace or that they might be struggling with responsibilities at home. People feel comfortable to talk about childcare responsibilities, but not so much caring for maybe somebody who's elderly at home. Mm. And it might be that if, if managers or employers felt that that was more of a safe space that their staff could talk about, it could be something that would increase the conversation so that individuals would be aware of what's available for them. That there's a lot of fantastic initiatives out there and some employers are recognised for their, their responsibilities to carers and what they put out there. Um, and later this year, there'll be um, carers' rights, paid, sorry, unpaid leave that's going to come in that they can take. But you wonder actually if people will use it and take advantage of it, particularly if they're not aware that it exists. So when does that come in? To uh, so later this year. So we're waiting on the legislation, but yes, it should come in later this year. So what will that mean that carers can just apply to their employer to take unpaid to leave take up unpaid. to five days? to manage with caring responsibilities. Okay. Now we anticipate that will often be not necessarily the caring itself, but it might be to organise care, but we're waiting to see on what the proposals will be. Do you think that there's a, there needs to be a bit more parity of steam in terms of employment contracts between health and social care? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't really, I don't work in health, so I don't know what benefits people working in health will get, but I have seen or heard in some instances that there will be a, a few months maybe of paid sick leave in certain roles, um, which you just don't hear about really in social care. Yeah, it's really difficult because employers will often benchmark themselves against other companies in an industry, which you can completely understand. They're looking to be competitive. At the end of the day, they're also running a business, so that needs to be able to meet their client demands. And when they're looking at either benchmarking salaries or the benefits that are offered, they will look at what's usual in that industry be it construction or food or residential development or legal services or care or health and social work and if there's union involvement which there often is in either health or social care that can help with the discussion about these things um, but ultimately it's it's at the end of the day there are basic statutory rights that are put in place by law and then it's up to the employer to decide whether or not they want to enhance those and the statutory minimums are unfortunately the minimums and they're not often very lucrative for the individual or don't necessarily ease a difficult situation 
what are the minimum that can be offered. And many small businesses, that is all that they can afford. They would like to do more, but there aren't necessarily the, the resources that they have to put that in place. So there can be differences between sectors, and I think rightly so, that reflects just the nature of variety that businesses have. Um, but it does make it difficult, particularly if you've got somebody in one industry that's talking to somebody else in another industry, and they're comparing rights and thinking, actually, if I was in your job, it'd be a lot easier for me to understand the benefits available or have a bit of a break and understand that, that there are systems in place that can help me at this difficult time. So it's almost like some of the employers are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, very much so, very much so. We've seen over the last few years the direction of travel is much more about the rights of individuals, more so necessarily than looking at particularly parity between employers and employees. I mean, you've always got the, just on a contractual basis, you've got the individual as an employee versus often a corporate entity as an employer. So there is naturally an imbalance in bargaining position there. But the additional legislation and case law that's coming in are much more in favour of the individual when there is a challenge. I mean, topical issue on the gig economy um, and workers' rights and actually more individuals are found to be workers or employees than necessarily being self-employed contractors. So we're seeing a lot of themes come through on that. But you can understand at the end of the day, if a business is running, let's say, a restaurant, they want to provide excellent food and service. They then are also under the burden of when they're dealing with staff, what are the rights and obligations they owe to those members of staff? Now, that's all part and parcel of running a business, but you can see how there's a lot that they have to deal with in process. So understanding that, keeping up to date on it, it is really frequently changing. So it's about keeping up to date and knowing what's coming in. So Helen, I wanted to come uh, to the cause of protection. So uh, you provide support for people who are going to the court for protection or um, have to be represented there. Can you talk a little bit about what the cause of protection is and, and how you get involved um, and the cases that come up? Absolutely. Um, so the court protection um, is is court, so like going to criminal court or county court, it is court, so there are judges. Uh, and the whole point of it is, is that the judge can make decisions about somebody who lacks mental capacity to make decisions themselves. So say somebody's got dementia or a brain injury, um, they've had a stroke, extreme cases are in a coma, they can't make decisions for themselves and can't make their views known. So the court will need to make a decision for them. That's a very big responsibility because nobody likes making decisions for other people. So the court very much likes to know if and somebody can't make decisions themselves, who's going to take on that responsibility? There's quite a strict process to go through. You can't just go to the court and say, I'd like to you know, take over looking after your money. The court will want to know who I am, how much money um, I'm going to be looking after, what decisions I will be making. So um, you can apply to become what's called a deputy. So that person will then be legally responsible for managing the finances for another person, um, and they will be required to report annually about what they're doing. So you can't just go and spend somebody's money on, on your whatever you fancy. And um, the court protection sometimes comes up in the newspapers and the media because um, there are rogue people doing things and you know all wrong, uh, wrong. But very much it's the idea. It's very much protective. The, it's in the name protection. They are protecting people who are vulnerable. So it is a it is a right and proper that there's a lot of procedure to go through. So again, I can support people making that application to court to help them manage somebody else's affairs. 
Um, we're all very good at saying, oh, it'll never happen to me. Sometimes it does. Um, and you suddenly find that somebody can't make decisions themselves. And that's, that's fine, or maybe on a day-to-day basis. But when it comes to big things like um, where do you live? What care do you want? That can actually be quite problematic. So I've seen people who are in the care system and have lacked capacity to sign a contract or understand what care fees need to be paid. And it's a very sad case um, where somebody was in a care home and the care home was closing and they needed to move, but they weren't able to sign a contract for the new care home. And the new care home said, well, because we don't know how much money this person's got, we can't take them on. And so the family found themselves in a position where the care home they'd wanted their relative to go to wouldn't take them and they had to be moved somewhere else because there just wasn't the ability to sign the contract, look at the finances. And it, it, it was quite traumatic for them because they, they found somewhere that they thought was going to be lovely. But again, this idea of the law underpinning it. Mm. So until we got a court of protection order to access the finances, weren't able to make decisions. So it's about putting power in the right place. Um, and like everything, these things take time. Mm. And crises happen. Um, things need to happen quickly. And sometimes they just can't. So the court, the court is there. The court's quite cautious about what the decisions they will make. Um, but without that court order, sometimes banks, building societies, care homes will just say, sorry, we, we're not dealing with you, which can be really difficult when you, you want, you want yeah. things to move quite quickly. And so really, you probably would suggest that people are quite proactive with it. So especially if you've got maybe somebody who is elderly and you're worried that they might lose capacity at some point to go and apply for um, to be LPA or or something like that so that those decisions can just be made. Absolutely. So setting up powers of attorney, mm-hmm. they're like house insurance policies. You hope you don't need them because you hope you don't lose capacity. But actually it takes such heat out of a situation when you've got that bit of paper in the background and sort of personally gone through it with um, my, my dad who got really sick really quickly. And I had the power of attorney, so I was able to phone the bank, sort some things out, and he got better, he's, he's fine now, which is great. But actually, it would have just been another stress that I didn't need, and my mum didn't need at the time. Yeah. Um, you so know, you've got all of that before he lost capacity. So your uh, your powers only kick in when he might lose capacity. Or, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he he was he was really poor in hospital for a few weeks, mm-hmm. and, and you know he was he wasn't able to phone the bank, and he wasn't able to yeah, yeah. Like, sign checks and, and move money around online banking. So my mum refuses to do any sort of online banking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, well. Quick, let's let's talk to the bank. Let's yeah. set you up so you can do what needs to be done. And it was just helped yeah. move things along quicker. Unless you could just get on with it. So really, it's a good idea for everybody to have that if they think they might have a poorly parent at some point. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and lovely. If you if your parents don't get poorly, great, you don't need them. Mm. But if you do, it's the last thing you want to be doing is realising that you're struggling to pay your shopping bills or you're struggling with things, you know, when you've got somebody poorly in your life and you're to and from hospitals. So. And is that something that 
that you would help with or can people do themselves if they're too busy they can come to someone like yourself yeah absolutely i mean you know the government's really good there's an online system you can do the powers of attorney Mm. um you can have help with it um and it depends on how good you are with filling in forms and understanding all the law that goes around it so i would say you know people should have a look and see how comfortable they are with doing things and understanding it's a big responsibility yeah um, I want to move on to the the case around sequins. Yes. So there's been quite a lot of case thought and press around sequins. So that's staff who are working in an organisation on night duty. Um, can you talk about some of the issues and around it and where it is at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So in the last few years, there's been a number of cases bouncing up and down through the more uh, junior to more senior courts in England and Wales deciding on this issue about payment for care workers that are working the sleeping shifts and that that is often when they are required to be at their place of work but can sleep for that shift but have to then wake up when there's an issue for example they might be sleeping on a ward but then when they're called when a when a member of um, the care home that they're looking after wakes up maybe distressed and needs their assistance they then wake and at that point they then go and assist deal with whatever the issue is and then they can go back to bed and sleep Now, there were a number of cases where individuals raised the concern to their employers that actually under the relevant legislation, which is the national minimum wage, they should be being paid for the time that they were asleep, not just the time that they were awake. Now, HMRC govern the national minimum wage requirements, and they had in place for a number of years that flat rates could be paid for a a night shift where the sleeping was being worked. And it was often the case that employees, when they were then required to be awake and working, were paid for those hours throughout the night when they were awake. Um, And this was challenged because the individuals were saying, well, actually, look, I'm required to be at my place of work. I'm required to sleep not at home or outside, not the comfort of my own bed. And I could be woken up six or seven times a night. And okay, I might be paid for those six or seven times I'm awake. But what about the rest of it? I can't leave. I can't decide what I want to do. I can't watch Netflix or I can't chill out or I can't you know, see my friends and family. What, what is it that you know, I should be being paid for this time? So what's been going through the courts and a number of challenges. So in 2018, we had a Court of Appeal decision that said that actually when, according to the national minimum wage regulations, when they were asleep, they weren't entitled to be paid national minimum wage for each of those hours. Now, that was quite a relief for those that are employing carers in the sector because there was estimated liability of 400 million for the potential back pay, because it would then be looking backwards for six years as well of the underpayments. Now, now the um, HMRC that police this can also put in place sanctions and penalties for underpayment. And employers were rightly turning around saying, well, hang on, not only was it okay for me to pay a flat rate for a sleep-in and the time when they were awake, you've now made a decision subsequently, I've got a bill of X million that I now need to pay for, and potentially sanctions and, and penalties on top. So. It's obviously a very important and critical decision that will affect the industry worldwide. Um, And they're looking at whether or not the Supreme Court last week heard the appeal on whether or not actually they were going to decide as the Court of Appeal did in 2018 or whether they were going to overturn the decision. And as expected, the judges have withdrawn for the moment and they're considering their decision and we're due to have the judgment early summer. We don't have a fixed date. We're now at the, the wait and see period. Um, There's quite a lot of commentary that suggests that it might be sort of favourable towards the employers at this point. And and MENCAP is one of the employers that's going through the the number of conjoined cases that are dealing with it on appeal. Um, And it's not going to stand still, whatever decision we have. So if it's found in favour of the employers, 
then there isn't this potential huge back pay liability to be paid. Um, but there's quite a lot of commentary out there saying, well, it's just not fair. These workers are often working in very difficult conditions. They're poor performing an um, incredibly valuable piece of work for the community. Actually, they should be being paid for this. Well, that's not the issue that the court's considering. They're strictly looking at the legal interpretation of the national minimum wage and whether these sleeping shifts fall within the right to be paid for the entirety of that period. It's not a question of wider social issues as to whether these people should be paying for that. But you can see how the issues easily become conjoined. Um, so there's there's been um, requests that the government consider this and put in place legislation. Um, so whichever way the case goes, I think there will be change. There are a number of employers, particularly those that have the resources and availability to do it, that have increased the pay for sleep-ins and are paying at the national minimum wage rate throughout the night. Um, but others, and in particular smaller uh, care providers, are just not able to do that. So whichever way the decision goes, I think there will be change. Um, I think there will be additional cost for employers because they'll either have the back pay liabilities that they need to pay over what we hope is a period of transition rather than just an instant decision and that there's a debt that needs to be paid. Um, but there will also be the ongoing change where actually you're looking at higher rates of pay for workers more generally. Does that then have a knock-on impact on the individual and the cost of care? You know, where is this money going to come from? Because as we know, the sector is quite under-resourced financially at the moment. And if there's not only increases in line with national minimum and living wage anyway, when this comes in, how will sleepings be paid for and how will this affect all the other bills that need to be paid for the sector generally. So it's a really interesting time. I think we'll have to wait and see what the decision says, but I think there will be change regardless of which way that decision goes. Do you think that employers will be able to go back to the local authorities and say, have a case against them? Depends on the terms of the contract. So there have been a lot of calls for action for the government to step in and fund this difference between the, the back pay liability that might be due. Um, the government has, has stayed very quiet on this, as you would imagine, um, and I understand that questions are being asked of local authorities, but of course local authorities are then deferring back to say, well, actually, no, we under the contract we were due to pay this, and, and we did. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a big question about where ultimately the buck stops, either with the care provider because they are the employer for that individual, or whether they can go through the various contracts that are in place with either local authorities or ultimately back to the government to say, look, who, who at the end of the day is going to pay for this? Mm. Do you feel that in cases like that, I suppose it depends where the decision falls, but sometimes the law can seem quite unfair to everybody, potentially. Yes. There's, there's quite a lot of, um, of passion around this issue, and I think rightly so. Mm. Um, it, as I say, it's not about whether or not care workers deserve to be paid a certain amount more. I think across the board, everybody would agree that if there were the resources available, we would love to be able to pay more for the services they provide but there are na um, there are um, minimum rates of pay available and that's often all that can the businesses can afford to pay so th there is a much wider and more impassioned personal side of this the supreme court however is only focusing on the legal issues and the interpretation of the national minimum wage but as you say it, it, it's almost too fine an issue to be able to to draw lines between but yeah i think there will be change because of the, the way people feel about this and that further change is needed. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we've come on to the bit of the um, co-producer care chat where we have our cactus questions, um, which are probably questions about having social care. And to be honest with you, it's all been a little bit prickly because they're difficult issues because you're dealing with the law and cases um, and when things haven't quite gone right. But my question is, about what the government should concentrate on. So when um, we had the election, 
Boris had a commitment, but what would you think the government should focus on? Maybe Helen, if you've got some Oh my goodness, that's a massive cactus question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think that it's such a big, and it's an emotive, mm. it's money, it's complicated, everybody's got an opinion. There's everything ties in. So we talked about employment rights. There's all sorts of stuff in the news about immigration, um, saying that care workers are low skilled, which I think is terrible. And I, I think that it would be lovely to just get some senior people in a room, lock them in a room and say, right, come out with some sort of sensible proposals, because it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. There's a very good chance at some point you're going to need some health or social care mm. and where where's that money coming from who's paying for it and who's providing it and making sure that people know know their rights know what they're entitled to and know what the limits are and i think just making it trying to cut it down and make it really clear and get that message out there and get people thinking about the implications whether it's you know saving using their property pensions, bringing in workers from other places. I think there's so much to, to pull together, but I think I would like to see a sort of a menu. This is what we're going to do. We're going to look at three, three, three or four things and then tackle it and everybody, every party has a representative in a room and they're not allowed out until they've come up with yes. an idea. Yes, that we have a lock-in. <laughs> yeah. They have to just decide they've come out. It's days, weeks, months, yeah. whatever. You're not allowed, because I think yeah. we've, we've had so many green papers proposed or so much being kicked into the long grass. And, you know, ageing population, uh, we've got people sort of coming through through school age, school leavers who are in the care system, we've got both ends of bulging yeah. with, with care needs. And it's not going away, but the government really needs to just sit down and tackle that really complicated question. So that, that's, that's what I'd like to see it in the first 100 days. I don't think I'm going to have a breath. <laughs> um, so say they come up with a plan and it says, all, all us politicians are going to sit together in a room and talk it out. Do you think actually maybe there should be something like a referendum or something where they just go back to people and say, these are the options. Let's look at it more constructively. Let's think about what can we afford? What could we afford if we raise, raise, raise taxes or, or did awareness in a different way? Like just open up the debate a bit more. I think it would be really interesting because I think that people don't understand the difference between healthcare and social care. Yeah. I think people don't understand the difference between taxation and national insurance. I don't think I think that there's so many pots of money and they don't really necessarily all come together. And I think an, an idea of some sort of referendum or consultation that says, yeah. look, we've got the these these are the options, these are the implications. What do you think? works for you what, what what's fair I, I don't think you can be completely fair because everybody's different there will always be somebody who isn't catered for but I think there needs to be a much better understanding of where the money's coming from so um so other countries like Denmark and Germany mm. much more taxation much more sort of contribution social fund but much more support when needed um, I think I think in this country we're very much seeing people not understanding that all the contribution they've made by tax and and you know national insurance isn't enough. So I think you know people need to understand that that sort of but I've paid for this all my life isn't enough money. Yeah. So 
Uh, Cecily, what do you think? I think Hella's raised a number of excellent points and it is very difficult. No, there will be no one size fits all solution and there will always be people that are unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, as a topical issue, we've had the immigration policy statement released last week that's talking about the new immigration system that will be in place from the start of next year after we end the transition period. Um, and that's raised a, a lot of queries, particularly for the social care sector. I mean, they're talking about having um, a one-size-fits-all immigration system, so not the split between EEA and um, the points-based system that were non-EEA um, migrant workers, one-size-fits-all. But there are salary thresholds, and they're proposing, um, it was initially going to be 30000 a year, it's now down to 25600 But when you speak to a lot of workers in the, in the care sector, um, they're earning around 16000 a year, which is far beneath the cap that you would need to reach. And there are points based, so a, a migrant worker would need to have 70 points to come to the UK. So they'd need to be able to um, prove their knowledge of English language, have a job offer at the right level, which is equivalent to A-levels, and meet the salary threshold. Now, there are proposals that they can trade skills, if there are higher skills, to a lower salary. But they're talking about the lowest salary being about 20480 which is still, if you think about it, a lot higher than the average 16000 a year. So you've got a sector that already has um, significant sh- staff shortages that are at the moment the gap is filled with a lot of um, EU workers that come under free movement. What is going to happen to the care sector and, of course, many other industries, but just specifically looking at care, when these new immigration rules come in? And what's the impact that's going to have on the quality of care or the availability of care? And does it mean for that individual, you know, um, Joe Bloggs on the street that is working, let's say, as a as an IT manager somewhere, if they don't realise that mum and dad might need care at some point in the future, are they going to be the ones to give it? Or are they going to have to take time out of work? Are they going to have to stop working? So I think the, the immigration system, but also the impact that it will have on individuals around the UK is going to be very, very wide ranging. And there needs to be considerable thought into how employers can prepare for that, how they can communicate to their staff about that, but also how the sector as a whole can prepare for these changes such that there isn't a big shock to the system. It's good that you know, we're now February 2020, that we've had this policy statement now and they're talking about further reforms and a, and a draft bill in March. But let's actually have that conversation, have that discussion earlier throughout the year so that we know what's the systems in place. If there's going to be a, a shortage of the availability of workers, where is that shortage going to be filled? How are employers going to recruit the skilled, I call them skilled workers, that they need? It's not just focusing on the the sort of more glamorous, high skilled workforce that they've been talking about and potentially IT procurement, for example, or the really specialist skill set. Actually, we've got skills here that we need in in jobs that are actually already lacking the employees that we need for them. So how is that immigration system going to impact? And I think we talked earlier about the sleeping crisis, that there's a lot of pressure on employers, particularly in the care sector. There's changes and and financial pressures on all sides, not just generally in running a business, but how you're going to pay your staff, how you're going to find your staff under the immigration system, and also just deal with the run-of-the-mill changes where national minimum wage increases or there are additional rights for workers coming in all the time. How are they going to prepare for this? Who are they going to be able to speak to about that? So I would like the government to be able to have a system in place that can support employers to do that, Mm -hmm. to do that well for those that are benefiting from the system, but also those that are working on the system. Very good questions. Um, Maybe one day if I get Boris and I can reduce cash, (laughs) I can ask about it. Um, So... The stuff that you've talked about on this co-produced care chat has been really interesting. Um, but you also offer some 
days or mornings or coffee mornings where you will share certain information um, about employment law or, or social care law. Um, how does that work? Uh, we, 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 so uh, in our offices, we will have tea and mm. cake, very important tea and cake. Of course. And get people in the room and say, what, what's bothering you? What, tell us what's, what's happening in your life, whether you're an employee, whether you're an employer, whether you're caring for somebody, or whether you're all of these things. Mm. And what, what, what's bothering you? What, what's keeping you awake at night? And what can we tell you that we know might just put you on the right path? So it's great. We, 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 we learn as much from people coming to us as we can tell them. So we always like sitting down and having a chat and tea and cake. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And just it's spreading the awareness as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I think is fantastic. And we do that not only with individuals. So we had a successful afternoon tea day last year in conjunction with Carers' Rights Day. Mm. Um, but also as... Um, practitioners in the field we like to be able to deal with other professionals that are also either social workers or in the NHS or local authority because often we're, we're working with the same people who are in a crisis situation that need help and if we can understand where other professionals are working in the sector actually if, if we're all singing off the same hymn sheet we can understand how to fundamentally help that person in the middle rather than them being blocks in, in um, communication or just signposting around the circle where people need help. Actually, if we can be more informed about where other professionals need our help, advice, or we can help them, I think that ultimately really helps the individual at the end of the day as well. So yeah. we tackle it from both perspectives. And that's great to hear because it's very person-centred. It's not thinking, well, I'm getting assistance so because I want a confrontation, because yeah. something's going to happen and we're going to end up in court. It's actually just helping people understand the Care Act, helping people understand employment law, employers and, people, and employees, um, and doing the same in the care sector. So that's really good to hear that you're just trying to make sure that people are better informed. So that we're looking after the person who needs who needs care, um, and finally, um, Helen, you talked about Step, which sounds really interesting, and you're involved with Step. Can you um, explain a bit about that? Yeah, so Step stands for Society of Trust and Estates Practitioners. Bit of a mouthful, yeah. um, but it's an international organisation, and it's uh, it's got sort of professionals in sort of lawyers, accountants worldwide looking at um, lots of largely lots of things but the bit I was involved with was mental capacity and so we had colleagues in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, California, Northern Ireland all talking about what's going on in their jurisdictions and how if you've got people moving between states and jurisdictions what does the law look like in these different places? And talking about what the law is like in Australia, Singapore, Canada, and actually it's really interesting to see that how different um, countries are following model of the uh, in the UK. So um, Singapore's just um, recently passed a Mental Capacity Act that's got a lot of similarity to the Mental Capacity Act in, in England and Wales, which is brilliant. But they've got some really nice enhancements, you know, so it's, it's really nice to see that, how that's grown. So it's, I think, mental capacity issues, uh, social care issues are worldwide. So it's really interesting for us to be able to see how different countries are, are dealing with that, what they're doing and learning from each other. Nice. So do you have a case where someone might be in one country and go to another country and then there's the capacity issue? 
Is, is that is that common or is it's it? it's more um, common than you might think. So again, um, had people who've gone and retired to Spain, maybe gone and retired to France because you know leave the terrible weather in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, they they sort of maybe get some kind of dementia, and their their children are still in the UK, and they're sort of saying, "Well, we want to bring them back." Um, but then it's like, well, we own property in another country. Uh, so I, I dealt with clients um, and we had to go to the court of protection to get a court order saying that the French um, lawyers understood that who was acting for the family so they could then sell the property. So um, other jurisdictions understand what courts are, but they're not very good at things like the office of the public guardian because that's like a government department. But other jurisdictions understand court. So yeah, we 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 do we've worked with clients who've got property all over the place and um yeah, it's it's a it's a good forum for meeting other people. Yeah, it's just something you'd never think of. No. I just would never think of that situation. But like you say, it's probably more common than you would think because you do have expats. Yes. Um uh so yeah, very very likely to happen. Thank you for that. Um so say I've just uh, listened or watched this video and I'm really interested in uh, Greg Actions and what you're doing. How would somebody find out more about the work that you're doing or get in touch? Oh, lots of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, um we've got our website, yeah. uh, we're both on social, we're both on Twitter, LinkedIn, yeah. direct email, mm-hmm. pick up the phone, come in and see us. You know, yeah. we 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 we're, we're open to Bristol. Based in Bristol, yeah. Square. Queen Square. Queen Square, yeah. Or come along to a number of our events. I mean, yes. I'm, I've often, um, with a number of colleagues, run some employment-specific events, so you're welcome to come to those. Great. Health, likewise, organises some specifically for individuals, but we're looking in the next year at putting together a programme that are across both of our sectors, but also, as I say, not just for individuals in the sector, but also other practitioners in the sector. So we're trying to get in front of and speak to as many people as possible. So and are those free events or do you sign up to newsletter or both? So yeah, we have a number of free events. We've always run free events to date. Um, yeah. It depends on the number of people that we have involved and which venues we might need to involve. But um, yeah, it's certainly something we're looking at when we get more. That's great, fantastic. Well, we'll put all of the information uh, about Greg Latchins and what they're doing in the description box of this video um, and also in the information for the podcast. So thank you so much, both thank of you. you. I've really enjoyed it. I could sit here and talk to you for <laughs> an hour. Um, but sadly, we've come to the end. So thank you so much. Thank you.